The problems of this world are enormous, but the God we serve is bigger. He's a God who is heartbroken when events like this take place. And he's ready for change. This world is ready for change. The people of this world want more than what we see happening. We don't want things like this to continue. The world's looking for God. You know, they might not be, they might not be saying it this straightforward, but they're looking for God. They're looking for something more than they're seeing out there. And this is the time for us as Christians to step up. Because we have the greatest message that has ever been told. The message that says that God's love is so huge that he would send his only son into this world. The message that says that Jesus Christ would willingly take our place on the cross because his love is greater than our minds could ever understand. This love is not something that's conditional. It's not based on the things that we've done. But instead, our identity is that we are loved by God. Now, this isn't on your notes, but I wanted to make the point here because it's crucial. It's who we are. I, our identity in life is that we are loved by God. It's how we should be defined in all people. You know, not everybody understands this, but every single one of us is loved by God before anything else. And Jesus left us with the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the earth. That's the intent behind this sermon series that we've been working through, is to see how the early church spread the gospel and to try and pick up some tips and see exactly what we should be doing as a church. Because quite frankly, if we're not spreading the gospel ourselves, or if we're not equipping others to do it, we're disobeying God. And I love how simple this puts it. If we are not going ourselves, and if we are not sending others, we're disobeying the Great Commission. Because God wants to reach this world. He wants to transform lives. He wants entire communities to be changed. And what we're going to focus on specifically today is that God provides help for us as we're doing his will. As we're going to reach this world, God will be there helping us in ways that we might never expect. Because we're not alone in this process. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about the church growing from just 120 believers all the way up to 3.2 billion. Now, by human means alone, this would be impossible. But God wants us to, but God wants to show us today that He will bring unexpected help as we seek to do His will. So if you think the problems of this world are too big to fix, you need to re-examine the size of the God we serve because we're going to see what God can do. So we're going to dive into Acts chapter 5. If you need a Bible, there's some scattered underneath the seats. And as we're working through this, as you're filling out your Connect card, if there's any prayer requests you can think of, please write those on there as well, and that we'll pray for you. So starting at verse 12 of Acts chapter 5, it says, The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. And then it says no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. And just to address this so that none of us get stuck on this point, the reason why it says no one else dared join them is because 
the people recognized the intense commitment and responsibility to be a Christian. You know, they knew that it was more than just showing up for church on Sundays, or they knew that it was more than donating a can of food, but they knew it was an entire life commitment. So that's why it says no one else dared join them, because they realized how great of a responsibility this was. But then verse 14 continues and says, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So the church just kept growing. The numbers kept exploding. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So we see that just as today, the world wanted more than they were used to seeing, and they found this in Christianity. There was so, something so real about Christianity that the people just had to learn more about it, and the people had to commit to it. The people were attracted to the church because they saw how the believers were acting, and they wanted to be a part of it, and more and more continued to be added to the number. Now, the reason why more kept getting added is because we are changed when we accept Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit comes into us. We begin to lose things, like our impurities. We lose our hatred. We lose our jealousy, our fits of rage, and we lose our selfishness. And we leave those things in the past. Instead, Christians begin to act with other qualities. We begin to act with love and joy and peace. We begin to act with patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now, for some Christians, these things come quickly. Like, as soon as we accept Christ, we already kind of naturally have these within us. But for others, it takes longer. But for all Christians, once we accept Jesus Christ, we are on the path towards acting like that. Now, do you think someone living with these qualities would shoot up a school? Do you think this type of person would want to cause that much harm and devastation? And I say no. And that's why this is so critical, because we are changed once we accept Jesus Christ and we, be we become new creations. So as more and more individuals were accepting Jesus Christ in the early church, the community that they lived in would have been changing for the better. Now, the believers certainly weren't trying to hide this, because as we saw over the past couple of weeks, they are vocal about their faith. They were meeting in Solomon's Colonnade, which is like a porch-type structure right at the entrance to the temple, and those pesky religious leaders of the day took notice to them. Verse 17 says, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested these apostles and put them in the public jail. So Peter and these apostles were already gaining more respect than these religious leaders ever had. Now, these leaders didn't want to lose their prestige because that's all they really had in themselves. And they especially didn't want to lose it to a man who had been nailed to the cross by them. 
Like that is the last person that they wanted to lose it to. The leaders wanted the focus to be on themselves, but the Christian disciples wanted the focus to be not on themselves, but on God. They wanted to reflect God's love. So think with me about this. If we're trying to reach people purely through human effort, the the disciples would be stopped in their tracks right now because they were thrown in jail. There was no intention for their release. But with God's unexpected help, there's more to their story. So first we need to understand that to reach more people, God can do the impossible. Because look at the next line in verse 19. It says, But during the night... An angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And the angel said, Go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. See, the thing was, you didn't just escape from jails those days. First of all, they were securely locked. And then they had guards stationed to keep the prisoners in. And these guards had so much incentive to keep them in because it was often their life that was at stake. Like, If the prisoner would get free, that might mean that the guard would have to be killed and give up his own life. So this wasn't a common practice that would happen. And also, God didn't send this angel just to say, hey, Christians, like I'm going to get you out of jail now, but I'm sending you out so that you can be safe and out of harm's way. Like Go out to the countryside and hide out for a while till all this boils down. They didn't say, you know, wait till the commotion's over, you know, then you can bring your Christian life back. The angel said, go stand in the temple courts and tell all the people about this new life. And you know what these apostles did once they got out of jail? At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. It says that in verse 21, and it's just so incredible that It doesn't say half of them retreated and half of them began to teach the people, but it says that they did as they were told. Now, I would imagine at first these disciples would have been nervous because, you know, they got out of jail in the middle of the night and they might be thinking like, okay, we got out here, but they're going to be coming for us. They're going to see us here and then they're going to want to punish us worse than before. It's not only that, but... Earlier, they were warned not to speak about Jesus Christ, and then they escaped jail, and then they were doing the exact thing that they were told not to do. So these disciples probably would have been very nervous at this point. They'd know that their lives are in real danger. So then, we pick back up in the text, and it says, the high priest and his associates arrived, they got to work for the day, and they called together the Sanhedrin the full assembly of the elders of Israel. And then they sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. They said, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. And then we continue, and it says, Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail, they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people. 
So that the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles back. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Now, these leaders, when they first saw them out in the temple courts, they were probably astounded because they thought, wait a second, the doors are still locked, the guards are still there. How'd they get out there? And then they may have been thinking in their minds, there's something more to this. Maybe they really are declaring the correct message. But then like a snap of a finger, they'd snap out of it and their anger would come back and then they'd say, get these people in here now because they were all about themselves. So they wanted to keep the power. So then verse 27 says, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And he said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man, Jesus Christ's blood. Now, if I could talk to these disciples right now, like if I could interrupt their life 2,000 years ago and speak to them right now, I'd say, hey guys, you might want to cool it a little bit because they're getting very, very mad at you, and this is going to end up costing you your life. This kind of reminds me of how if there's a substitute teacher in class for a day, you know, the students will push that teacher and push that teacher and see where that teacher's limits are. But once the teacher says one more word and you're getting detention, then the students sit back, zip their lips and say, okay, I got it. And that's what I'm thinking I would tell the disciples, like, okay, you pushed it far enough, that's it. But thankfully... I wasn't there to tell these disciples that because they answer quite differently. Peter and the other apostles in verse 29, they all reply, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now as Christians, we should try to live at peace with everybody. But conflict with the world is going to happen, especially as we're carrying out our beliefs. Now when there's a choice between obeying God or obeying man... The answer is God. Now think back to Daniel with me in the Old Testament. The official law was that no one could pray to any God or any being except for the king for a 30-day period. So what did Daniel do? Three times a day he got on his knees and prayed to our God. So he was thrown into the den of lions, but God miraculously closed the mouths of the lions and spared Daniel his life. He did the impossible. Or what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? These three refused to bow down to the king's image, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Now it's reported that God's presence was in there with them. They could see four images in there, and God did the impossible to allow them to miraculously escape. Or what about the Egyptian army that was chasing the Israelites? 
God empowered Moses to split the seas to escape. Now, when we're seeking to do God's will, he specializes in doing the impossible. So after the disciples responded in this bold way, once they said, we are obeying God, we pick up in verse 33. And when the religious officials heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But as we'll see, to reach more people, God can not only do the impossible, but he can use the unlikely. Now the Pharisees, they were one of the major Jewish parties of the council. They strictly enforced adherence to the laws. They wanted people to follow the laws. And not just God's laws, but a number of different rules they made up as well. So like 400 others. But the thing is, these Pharisees didn't like to follow these laws themselves. So they were what is known as hypocrites. And as you can imagine, Jesus had a number of run-ins with these people because they didn't want him taking power And he wanted to try and show them where they were falling short. Now think of yourself as one of these Pharisees as we go through this next section of text. Now, you think Christians are nuts. They're threatening your power and they need to be stopped. And this is your chance to finally stop them. You know, you have them right where you want them. And then we pick up in verse 34. It says, But then a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that these men be put outside for a little while so they could talk about what was going to happen to them. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. And he said, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. And then what he does next in the text is he gives two examples of what happened when cases like this happened in the past. First, he says, Some time ago, Thudius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And then he uses the second example. He says, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. It said he too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. So then he goes on to reason, therefore... In the present case, I advise you, leave these Christians alone. Let them go. For if their purpose is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourself coming against God. Now, even though rationally this all makes sense, if I was one of these Pharisees, I would be thinking, what? What? Because... This man, Gamaliel, he's one of the greatest teachers of this era. And he's telling us to let the disciples go? Like, we have them right here. We can just put an end to this right now. Like, doesn't this man see them as a threat to our system? How can he be saying this? Like, I'd be frustrated if I was a Pharisee. But like I said a couple minutes ago, to reach more people, God can use the unlikely. And he used a Pharisee to help continue the Christian way. 
So even though this man wasn't necessarily in favor of Christians, he knew better than to go up against them if they really were from God. He may have suspected that this might be a blessing of a new movement. Now this reminds me of another time when God used the unlikely. What about when God used the prostitute Rahab? She came to the aid of the Israelite spies, and she helped them get out before Jericho was eventually destroyed. God used a prostitute. That's not some, someone we would think is likely. Or what about something unlikely in my own life? I'm getting about done with my master's degree, and, you know, it's difficult to pay for school. It's expensive these days. And even though I only work part-time at UPS... And even though this degree is going to do nothing to further my career at UPS, UPS is paying for nearly all of my master's degree. So I never would have thought that, but God uses the unlikely when we seek to do his will, and he lets things happen. So look back at the text with me, to to verse 40. It says, Gamaliel's speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, and they did have them flogged. They had them whipped. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, but they let them go. So even though they were physically punished, this did not stop their movement as death would have, because death would have just ended it, but instead they were just punished. And do you think this punishment slowed them down? No, because look at verse 41. It says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So they were honored to receive this punishment. They felt like so great that they were able to be punished in the name of Jesus Christ. So we know that to reach more people, God can do the impossible and he can use the unlikely. But to truly reach more people, God needs our obedience. Look at the final verse of the text with me. It reads, and this is right after the disciples got out, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Remember what we talked about in the beginning. We either go and we make disciples, or we disobey God. There's no middle ground. Now, I'm sure some of you have experienced, there's a number of stores out there that they give you a coupon, but they say you don't know what exactly the coupon's for until you come make your next purchase. Now, that's kind of frustrating because you don't really want to go back to that store and you don't know how much to spend, but it ends up kind of getting you to come back. And it's the same way with our service to God. God doesn't say, I'm going to use you to reach three people in my name. He doesn't say, I'm going to use you to reach 8,000 people in my name. Because if we knew those results, you know, then we might say, that's worth it. Or we might say, that's not worth it. But instead, God reveals how he'll use us as we are serving him. And I promise you, God will use each person in powerful ways. Because once this process starts, once people start, ex- start accepting Christ, the momentum comes and then it explodes. And communities are changed. Schools are changed. Families are changed. 
And all we need to do is give the message and trust that God will handle the rest. Because His Holy Spirit's alive and active in this world. But one trap that we fall into often is thinking that the only people who we can reach are the people who are right around our age, the people who look like us, the people who we always come in contact with. But think for a second at this example. We hear problems about the younger generation a lot. We even see it on the news. Well, I'd say it's time to really start investing in them. Because listen to this, over 90% of teenagers in this country don't have dialogue with either parent about faith. 90%. No talk of faith within the home. Even in some Christian homes, you don't see parents necessarily talking to children about faith. But where do the students get their influences from? They get it from school. They get it from the internet. Places where you don't necessarily want them to be influenced. Now there's a man named Frank Martin who, he's a college basketball coach at the University of South Carolina, and he gained some fame because his team made it to the Final Four last year. And he came, he said this last year, and it really stuck with me. Now his job is to work with college-age students. And he said, you know what makes me sick to my stomach? When I hear grown people say that kids have changed, kids haven't changed. Kids don't know anything about anything. We've changed as adults. We demand less of kids. We expect less of kids. We make their lives easier instead of preparing them for what life is truly about. We're the ones that have changed. Now, I know this isn't always true, but in some cases I agree with this. You know, I see the younger generations being put down, but I don't often see them being lifted up. Because younger people aren't accepting Jesus Christ. And one of the main reasons why is because they're not hearing about him. Or they're not seeing his love truly demonstrated by people who can influence their lives. You know, we hear about dramatic things happening like the shootings every once in a while on the news. But every single day... Students are being pulled in the wrong directions with no good influences to stop this. So if we want to see less situations like this school shooting, if we want to see this culture begin to turn around, if we want to see lives being changed by Jesus Christ, we need to be investing in others, not just the young people, but all ages. We need to be walking alongside them in life, and showing them love when no one else does. You know, there's no easy solution. We can't just throw a Bible at them, but we need to be spending time with other individuals and in showing them the love of Christ. So as we're reaching more people, God will do the impossible, and God will use the unlikely to help us. We simply need to obey His command to go into this world and make disciples. So please join me in prayer. So Heavenly Father, our heart breaks for what people are going through in this world. We know that we're not guaranteed comfort here. We know that this earth won't be perfect for us. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. 
Lord, we know the power that we have through your Holy Spirit. We know everything that you can do. And we pray this morning that you can empower us to go and do that. We pray that you can break our hearts for the things that breaks your hearts and that we can truly make a difference in this world in your name. Because we've seen that you can do the impossible. We've seen that you use the unlikely if we are simply obedient to you in this mission. So Lord, I pray that you will light a fire in this church bigger than we already have. I pray that all of the areas that we come from, Youngwood, Greensburg, New Stanton, Connellsville, Mount Pleasant, I pray that we as a church can reach all of these areas and bring hope and that through you, communities can be transformed and there can be so much rejoicing here, Lord. So we trust you and we pray all of this in your name. Amen.